Welcome to B Squared, your weekly weather podcast. Meet Bonnie. She's from Oklahoma. Where the wind comes sweeping down the plain. A meteorology major and loves to chase. Meet Bobby. He's from Oregon. Going green. Greenage. Saddle up. You got it, boss. Oregon AMS vice president and a former TV weather producer. It's B Squared. Let's talk weather. Welcome into B-Squared, your weekly weather podcast. I am Bobby in Oregon. And I'm Bonnie in Oklahoma. Bonnie, it has been a historic weather week, and we will jump into everything Hurricane Delta. But, okay, uh, you know, the B-Squared curse must be alive and well. And I did just check the National Hurricane Center page. There is one area that they're watching, 20% chance of formation through five days. So I fully expect by the time I come home from work tonight that we will have our next tropical system fully up and operational. Right. If if the past several months have shown us anything, it's that once we talk about it, boom, it's something happen. happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's jump into what was Hurricane Delta, which is now extra post-tropical cyclone Delta, uh, as... It makes its way toward Washington, D.C. Hurricane Delta came ashore, Creole, Louisiana, uh, as a Cat 2, 100-mile-an-hour winds on Friday. Finally, a daytime or evening uh, landfalling event, which was great because we could finally see pictures of it. We could experience it live no matter where you watched it. So that part was pretty cool. However, with that said... Uh, the state of Louisiana has been hit now by four tropical storms this season. So, uh, one is too many, four is way too much. Yeah, definitely. And they're still trying to get over Laura at this point and Delta just come through and hinder the process further. Well, you know, Laura came ashore, uh, and here's kind of the cool fact of, you know, uh, the tropical cyclones with Delta and Laura comparing. Okay. Laura was a cat four. Okay, she will stand alone. Her name will be retired. And, you know, what what she did to Louisiana is extremely sad. People are still trying to rebuild from that, you know, six weeks post. People will still be rebuilding for that for six months away. There's no question about that. However, Laura came ashore in Cameron, Louisiana. As we said, Delta came ashore in Creole, Louisiana. You want to take a guess of how far apart those two cities with C's are? Uh, 20 miles, 13 miles. Wow. So you had two landfalling hurricanes come ashore 13 miles apart. It affected the same area over and over and over again. Uh, luckily though, with Delta, the storm was not as intense. It was in the process of weakening somewhat rapidly, depending on who you talk to and what, you know, data you look at. So the people of Southwest Louisiana dodged a bullet but how much of a bull they dodge, I don't know. I think that's yeah. still to be determined. Yeah. And, you know, it's probably going to be a little bit hard to assess the damage and know which is leftover damage from Laura and which is brand new damage from Delta. Exactly. But you're right. It wasn't strong when it came ashore as they thought. And it did weaken. Um, things I read was that coastal waters were cooler. And that's what lowered its intensity. But it was strong when it hit Cancun. Of course, it was weak when it came off of the Yucatan Peninsula, but then it strengthened again in the middle of the Gulf and then weakened a little bit as it came ashore. So it was a very much up and down situation for Delta. Right. You know, there's wind shear involved with it before it it made landfall in Louisiana. You could see that on the satellite picture. Um, You know, I sat there watching the coverage Friday and 
before this thing kind of hit the wind shear, this thing looked like it was trying to reorganize itself. Mm-hmm. Classic, you know, the everything was, you know, f- uh, I want to say fanfold, but I know that's not the right term. So it, it works, but it's not what I'm looking for. Anyways, it was starting to fan out and, you know, the colder cloud tops looked absolutely textbook. Everything on the outflow side was looking good. And then all of a sudden it encountered some wind shear and this thing started to get rip apart pretty quick. Um, you know, it went from being a, a cat to a landfall to within 24 hours, you know, basically below tropical storm status. Yeah. So we knew that the interaction with the atmosphere was going to kill it once it finally got to that point. But uh, it got to the point just about landfall and continued for the next day. So pretty awesome to see. Just crazy that it was, you know, the same path, same. I mean, it even curved in the United States the same way that Laura did and hit Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, parts of Arkansas. Like it just took the same trajectory, basically. So that is that is crazy. And for it to be so late in the season, super late in the season. Oh, extremely late. And, you know, we're not even out of it yet. We're still on the backside of the peak. There looks like there is, if you look at the historical graph, which we all see all the time, that there's mm-hmm. a little bump coming up. So everybody's kind of like, oh, you know, with 2020, what's going to happen? But yeah, let's see. Let's see. But let's let's kind of dive into the historical aspect of the season so far. And we do have to talk about some of the things with Delta uh, historical wise, because uh, Delta is a storm for the record books. Obviously, I don't think the name Delta will be retired. Um, and we did find out this week that if a storm is retired in the Greek alphabet, they basically denote it with a year and then the name gets reused. Yeah. Which that, that makes total sense. Like Delta 2020 historic storm, you know what I'm saying? And so that's, I, I think that's a good idea. And who knows, like if this, if there's multiple storms this season or in future seasons in the Greek alphabet where they have to quote, retire it with the year, they might start doing that for normal names and just being like, you know, Katrina 2005, you know what I'm saying? But still use Katrina later. Yeah. But I, again, I think there's just, I don't know. I think the, because the Greek alphabet is so rare and this is only the second time we've gotten there. I don't think we're going to run out of, you know, K names or B names or C names anytime soon. I think, you know, True. we could always, you know, there are a lot of people that get to, you know, do name variations. Exa- perfect example. My nephew's name is Kingston. It is not spelled like the city in Jamaica. It's <laughs> K-I-N-G. It's not like Sean S- Kingston. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's not, you know, S-T-O-N. It's S-T-Y-N because my sister wanted something, you know, different. So there we go. So there's variations of everything. So, you know, plus, you know, how many Hurricane Karens do we really need? We only need one. So let's get that retired if it's not already. <laughs> that That is true. And I mean, you know, Katrina can always be spelled with a C and that kind of thing. And right. so you're right. There are variations. Plus, there's just many K names, many B names and all of that. So that is yeah. a very good point. And it just might, you know, things get revamped and structures get changed. So who knows? Yeah. So let's just, let's just wait and see what happens. Um, yeah. History-wise, like we said, this is the fourth time that a tropical system has hit Louisiana. However, it's happened before. 2002, I saw four tropical systems hit Louisiana. So, knock on wood, nothing else forms in the Gulf, although that is one area that we do watch for areas to form. And those would necessarily have to hit the Gulf Coast. I want to say seven of the eight 
tropical or uh, seven of the eight hurricanes that have impacted the U.S. have hit the Gulf Coast this year, so that number is up. Um, according or as of October first, which does not include Hurricane Delta, according to the Cumulated Cyclone Energy Index, which is something that the National Hurricane Center uses. It measures the strength, duration of tropical systems and hurricanes. Activity is above average, and I want to say, well, no shit. Um, but the number comes out to basically about 25% above average over the long term. So we knew this season was historic. We knew that, you know, we had blown through the normal alphabet. We're into the Greek alphabet now, and we have all the stuff that's happening, and, you know, more storms possibly could form. We can discuss at a later date. If the National Hurricane Center was a little too quick to name some of the storms, I personally think that might be the case, but I'm not an expert. You know, I'm just I'm just making commentary here where, you know, when we talked about this on other shows, sometimes tropical systems, yeah, they look really impressive. But do they meet the qualifications of being a named storm? Do we need to name tropical depressions? I don't know. But, you know, that's up for them to decide, not me. Well, I mean, I do think there is a criteria for when they name a storm. And, you know, if the sustained winds get to where it needs to be and the pressure gets to where it needs to be to, to hit that, you know, they don't, it's not based on what it looks like. It's based on actual number data for it to get to that point of, okay, now it gets its name. So I would think that they were following that criteria and not just naming storms for record's right. sake and to go on par with 2020, you know what I mean? So right. I would, I would think that, that there's science, there's a science entity. So they would be following those rules and that criteria. I would hope, but you yeah. never know. Yeah, no, absolutely. 100%. And again, I'm not saying what the national hurricane center did was wrong. I'm just right. saying sometimes you, it feels like they're really quick to name a storm that has a 24 hour life cycle. And my thought is, do we need to do that? You know, the point of naming the storm is to raise awareness of it. Are we raising awareness on something that's 24 hours in duration? Well, but I think that they don't always know how long it's going to be alive. And again, I I totally understand that. Totally 100% understand that. So, you know, again, it's something for debate, right? And something that you and I can talk about. Uh, when we get into the dead parts of winter where there's nothing happening, which, you know, it is 2020. So I fully expect us to have a lot of stuff happening in 2020. So, Right. I, I mean, you know, for all we know, we're going to be having hurricanes in December. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. that's the path we're on at this point. Right. Or we're all expecting to have massive, you know, Arctic outbreaks and, you know, more polar vortexes across the entire lower 48. And how cool would that be? Just saying. Well, I will say we're expecting an Arctic front in about a week. So about this time next week. So we will see. We can get further into that when we talk about what's coming up with our own forecast. Yes, but we can. that will be exciting if it is truly an Arctic front. Right. All right. So let's talk about then the history with Delta because Delta did set some records. And this is the impressive part. So as meteorology nerds as you and I are, uh, this to me was kind of the exciting part of it. Delta rapidly intensified from a 35-mile-per-hour tropical depression to 130-mile-an-hour Cat 4 in 24 hours. That part, to me, was pretty mind-blowing. You know, we we tweeted out uh, the screenshot of your text to me saying, hey, you know, what's going on? Yeah. And again, nobody, no forecast models had that. They said it would obviously strengthen. I don't think we had anticipated it strengthening that much. 
It's the fastest such occurrence on record and the most rapid intensification observed in the Atlantic Basin since that of Hurricane Wilma in 2005. Wow. And we know what Wilma did. Wilma was very impressive. Um, you know, a storm that is in the record books for many reasons. Delta was also the strongest Atlantic hurricane to form in the Western Caribbean between Jamaica and the Yucatan since Hurricane Paloma in 2008. Delta is the earliest 25th tropical or subtropical storm on record in the Atlantic hurricane season, surpassing the old mark of November 15th set by tropical storm Gamma in 2005, the other year we went Greek. Wow, mm. a month earlier. That's huge. It's not just like, oh, a couple of days. It's like no. a full month earlier, bam, we've reached yep, yep. Full 25 month. storms. Full month. After making landfall in the U.S., Delta became the 10th named storm to make landfall in the continental U.S. this year, which is the wow. most in a single season surpassing the previous record of 1916, where nine storms made landfall. In addition, wow. Delta was also the record-time fourth-named storm to hit Louisiana in 2020, as we said. So, you know, um, <laughs> where where do we begin? Let's talk. I mean, I don't want to be cliche, like, but, like, seriously, 2020, like, what are we doing? Like, Everything that's happening is breaking records across the right. board in every aspect of life at this point. And that's so crazy that it's happening all in the same year. Right. So crazy. And, and again, maybe is it because of more intense uh, media coverage? Maybe is it because people are paying attention more? Could it maybe. be, you know, directly related to climate change? Possibly. I mean, if you go through and you look at uh, a lot of the different you know, annotations or, you know, references or I'm not, I'm not using the right word, obviously. It's early, by the way, we're taping this on Sunday morning and I'm normally still asleep at this point, but hey, it's okay. Uh, yeah. Reference points, bookmarks, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, they said if there is, you know, discernible, something that you can put uh, your hand on or put your, you know, your faith in anything with climate change, possibly hurricanes could strengthen more or have r more rapid intensification. Now, we have seen that trend the last couple of years where storms have gotten more intense, you know, as they get ready for landfall. Obviously, that needs to be looked at, you know, much more in depth, but that's just something that a lot of people are talking about. So, you know... We go back, we look at what we've been through the last couple of years, right? We know that, you know, things have been busy, things are happening. I wanted to read a tweet that was sent out. This was five years ago, okay? So this was five years ago, so let's rewind to 2015. 2015 was a relatively busy hurricane season, but this came from NASA, and I took a screenshot of this because I retweeted it from NASA. So in 2015... Quote, the U.S. hasn't experienced a landfall of a Cat 3 or larger hurricane in nine years. Stay updated as we monitor Hurricane Joaquin. Okay, so let's do the math here. In 2015, we had a tweet go out that said we had not had a Cat 3 or larger hurricane make landfall in the U.S. for nine years. So I'm doing the math in my head. Okay, that means... 2006, right? Yeah. Yeah. 2006. Fast forward 14 years. Cat 4 hurricanes in the Atlantic. Okay. That have made landfall. Let's pull up the list, shall we? 
2001. So are you about to tell us that NASA jinxed us? <laughs> no, no, I, I'm, I'm just saying that we went through a lot of times where, you know, we hadn't had one. And, you know, you look at storms that, you know, so Paloma, we talked about in 2008, you know, was a very, very strong storm. It had the most... Uh, in terms of, you know, uh, strengthening quickly. But so let's look at, I'm pulling up the map right now and looking at it, okay? Hurricane Laura breaks that. Actually, I take that back. Florence will, will break that in 2018. Hurricane, Hurricane Joaquin did hit the U.S., but it was a very short-lived storm. It was like two days, okay? Joaquin never came close to the U.S. It circled around and made its way to Spain. So in 2015 didn't happen. Nicole was a cat four and didn't do anything. Hurricane Harvey, obviously we know what Harvey did. We know what Hurricane Florence did. We know what Laura did. We know what Delta did. So for a long time, again, since 2009, right? No, 2006, we hadn't had a cat three or above. So I'm going to change this real quick. Beep. Ah, there we go. Alrighty, scroll, 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 scroll. Lots of cat threes, lots of cat threes. In the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. All right, 2000. All right, here we go. Coming up to presents. The East Coast, the United States. Okay, so technically in 2009, the last one that had dealt with the United States for a long time was Hurricane Bertha. Over the 4th of July or end of the 4th of July week in 2008. And then we fast forward any cat threes, nothing until we get to Hurricane Irene. And again, Irene did some damage. Um, it was a cat three. It came ashore. Where was it? To a tropical storm uh, in New Jersey. So again, didn't make landfalls a cat three. So we have all these storms that we came close. Nothing big deal. Superstorm Sandy. Now, here's an asterisk, right? We can put it, it was Sandy a hurricane and landfall. Was it extra tropical? Yeah, I think that's up for debate. Yeah. But she was a cat three at some point. Okay. Hurricane Edward, 2014. Again, skirted up the coast, never technically made landfall, cat three. So we went through this long period of time where, you know, the tropics were quiet. We made landfalling storms still happened, but nothing above a cat two. And then all of a sudden the last couple of years, we've seen Michael, Laura, Delta, other storms come ashore as, you know, obviously Delta was a cat two at landfall, but still this thing is somewhat, <laughs> you know, something that we need to look at because man, it wasn't, Anything that we, you know, kind of really thought about, but you go back and look at it, you know, NASA sends out a tweet five years ago, 2015, no landfalling cat threes on the U.S. since 2006. That blows my mind that we are in a within a, you know, what, 15 year period where we didn't really have a whole lot of really strong storms. And then all of a sudden now we've ramped up in the last couple of years to having 
several strong storms. So, you know, do we want to dive into that? Do we want to look at, okay, what happened in that 15 years? What happened in, you know, what happened to the climate when it turned over? Because, yeah, I understand that, you know, storms could get more intense. And that's obviously a side effect. We look at more, you know, rain, more storm surge. But there's a large gap in time, and it has happened in history before, where we have very quiet seasons. So, Bonnie, what makes it a quiet season? What makes it an active season? And if you just tell me it's 2020, that's not a valid. <laughs> it's not a valid thing. That's not an, a scientific explanation. No, it's not. It is not. <laughs> well, how many of those active years were El Nino or La Nina years? That's a very so good point. That might play a part. That, that there is a really good. That's a really good starting point because uh, we don't know. I'm sure, you know, the National Hurricane Center has dictated all that out mm-hmm. and how, has it in their, you know, past, uh, in their past, you know, recaps of every year. But it's very interesting. That is a great starting point. That's a great question. Um, this year, officially, NOAA has not released its winter outlook that's coming up in a couple of weeks. We'll talk about that later in the show. But from all intents and purposes, it looks like it's going to be a very strong La Nina year out in the uh, equatorial Pacific. So I'm kind of jacked up about that because that could mean more chances for snow in lowlands as you get into Oregon and Washington. Looks like it could be a whole number of things. Um, More snowpack for the western U.S. Usually La Nina means more snow and active, you know, cold outbreaks for the Midwest and the East Coast. So... Let's see what happens. Well, and I believe the winter before spring of 1999 was a La Nina year. And that was a very active tornado season as well. I think we've talked about this on previous shows, earlier shows, as in like a year ago shows. But, you know, that can also dictate possible, you know, spring outlooks and what, you know, maybe there'll be a little more severe weather and that kind of thing. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, El Nino and La Nina really affect the weather globally, and which is mind-blowing in itself that right. those waters off of South America really impact weather around the world. I, I just, that's kind of mind-blowing to me. But, you know, I'm just saying that's, I think that's something that needs to happen in all types of weather, winter, spring, hurricanes, is those kind of patterns are active seasons happening more often before a La Nina year or after a La Nina year or, you know, that kind of thing. And so I'm sure that research is being done. I'm not saying I've magically come up with this and I'm a brilliant scientist. So I'm sure it's already being looked at, but I think like all of that ties in to what creates an active season all around, whether it's hurricane, tornado, winter, whatever. Right. Well, I mean, you're right. I mean, a lot of, a lot of research has gone into it and there's a lot more that's still continuing to go into it. You know, how does a body of water on one side of the earth affect the weather globally? I mean, that's I'm not trying to make a, you know, a smart ass statement, but that basically sounds very, very, you know, it sounds kind of crazy, right? Or asinine or it sounds like, well, what do you mean? How does something affect something that far away? It does. Right. We know that globally, you know, differences in water temperature can affect stuff downstream. We see it with storms. All of a sudden, you have a hurricane go through a, 
you know, an area where you have really, really warm tropical waters and this thing explodes, right? If all the atmospheric conditions are correct, you get monster storm growth. We saw that just a, you know, a couple of days ago with Delta. So right. it does make a lot of sense. If you have, you know, a cycle of cold water that, you know, is upwelled out of the ocean from the depths of the ocean up toward the surface, yes, it's obviously going to change the climate above it. If you have warm water in that same area, yes, it's going to affect the climate and the other, you know, storms in the area. So a lot of area of research that still needs to be done with this, but, you know, it's one of those first things that you look like or you look at uh, when you're trying to determine a winter forecast. What's going to happen with the waters off of the equatorial Pacific? So, yeah, all I got to say is Nino region 3.4 and everybody kind of gets excited. So, yeah, one of my, I, I agree. One of my favorites. <laughs> well, and the funny thing, well, not the funny thing, but, you know, El Nino, La Nina don't just impact the weather, but they impact fishermen and right. economy in South America, too, because when it's a La Nina year, that's cold water at the surface and it's not as many fish. So it's very crazy how that phenomenon really impacts things hugely in the world, weather, economy and that kind of thing. So that's I mean, that's why when people talk about El Nino and La Nina, it's a, it's a big deal. So because I know that's been a weird concept that a lot of people don't understand around yeah. the world and around the country. No, it, it's it's true. It's a, there's an area of research that still needs to be done. But they have, you know, really ramped up the amount of work they've put into it. So, you know, man, knock on wood that it's a active winter, but it's a winter that is normal. I know it's 2020. Yeah, a doable winter. Active, yes. but like yes. not crippling. Yeah, exactly. Manageable. <laughs> we, will, we will definitely take that. So that's what, you know, kind of we'll look forward to. And like I said, we'll get into the NOAA outlook here uh, just a little bit. And then we'll discuss it, obviously, once they officially release it. But... You know, going back to what we saw with Hurricane Delta, you know, four storm to hit Louisiana. I said one is too many, four is way too much. And, you know, a lot of people are still dealing with Laura. Uh, we know that the Lake Charles National Weather Service radar is still down and will probably be down for a while. Um, some inside baseball there. The company that makes Doppler radars doesn't exist anymore. So... Awesome. <laughs> yeah, so they're going to have to source parts from other places. Um, the Radar Operations Center in Norman, Oklahoma, will be responsible and tasked with bringing that radar back up online. And I'm sure that they have parts to build a new radar, but the company that made those that we use doesn't exist. That's why we still have radars that don't uh, are up and operational in places where we need them. We've talked about the you know Weather Innovations Act that the president signed into law a long, long time ago. We finally got the radar gap study back. And when this thing was finally released to the public, it was like, womp, womp, not what we wanted to see. And we will get into that here on in a, in a few episodes because it's something I do want to talk about. But we've been busy with tropical seasons. But uh, long story short, this report came out and it said that everything looked great. But... Um, it still leaves a lot of questions and answers that we need to find out about why we have such a big radar gap issue in the United States and in places where we would probably want to see a radar that they don't exist. So on the fact that there's no plan to get one back online 
when one goes down because I think that the Lake Charles radar would have been very helpful. Oh, totally. Right now. Totally. And so the fact that like there's no plan or no like way to quickly get something back online during the midst of an active season, that's probably something that needs to be looked at too. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I get you can't pull a radar producing company out of your butt and just make it happen, but maybe that's something that needs to be in the works. Right. So people are asking if you're listening to the podcast, well, then how do you replace a radar? Well, when Puerto Rico was hit a couple of years ago, they lost their one Doppler radar. So the Department of Defense came in and brought in a mobile Doppler radar. These do exist. You can purchase, you can actually buy them online, which, you know, kind of blew my mind, but uh, they're not available on Amazon yet. Uh, speaking of Amazon, <laughs> yeah. shout, shout out to my employer. It is Amazon Prime Week. So if you're an Amazon member, you get a bunch of cool discounts. And because of that, I'm about to rack up a lot of OT. So thank you to everybody that is buying things during Amazon Prime Week. I do appreciate you. <laughs> All right. With that said, the Department of Defense from the United States brought in a portable Doppler weather radar. They do exist. Companies do make them, and they're kind of scattered about. They're smaller. They're not as powerful as the current you know, WSR-88Ds that we have scattered across the country that you know we all look at. The city of Dallas and surrounding communities have their own little co-op network of these smaller Doppler radars. These things are not meant to you know, replace the National Weather Service ones. The National Weather Service does have access to this data, but it's more meant for, you know, smaller areas and they use it for storm coverage. Some of the TV stations have their own Doppler radars. That's what they use. So with that said, we look at, you know, well, what about that? Is that an option? Yes, 100%. Could the Department of Defense bring in a, a portable Doppler radar for Lake Charles? Yes. Could a TV station like Charles go out and purchase their own radar? Yes, absolutely. No doubt about it. So there is an option to get a radar up and running in a short amount of time, but it also, it costs money, right? So that's where kind of, that's the catch 22. Do we need it versus how expensive is it? Yeah. And I think that's always the debate with any big purchase yep. of any kind, but it's, you know, I'm in class right now for an emergency management degree, and one of those classes is called mitigation, which is just being prepared, taking steps to prevent something from being worse than it has to be. Right. And I think radars in key places like along the coast, Puerto Rico, that kind of thing, is something that can help. It gives you a better picture of the storm. It gives you a better feel of the direction it's going and that kind of thing. And so it's, you know that helps communities prepare for impact. So the fact that that kind of thing is not a priority is the reason that recovery is so much harder than it has to be because things are worse than they have to be because the steps before a disaster are not taken. Right. And again, we are not saying that the National Weather Service does not have a plan. It, right. Know, and, you know, we're, we're talking in hypotheticals here. I'm sure they do have a plan to figure out how to get a new radar installed in Lake Charles in a very timely fashion. Now, granted, it's been six weeks since Laura. Okay. You and I both know the federal government does not move fast unless it absolutely 100% has to. And which is another problem, but that's a rabbit hole. We don't have to go down. Ex exactly. <laughs> and again, this is not a, not a political discussion. It, it, it doesn't matter what administration this is. It's the government. They move at their own pace. Fine, right. whatever. It took them four years to write up a report that's like six pages long about radar gap coverage. Enough said. 
So with that portion said, we look at what are the options. Now, granted, are we going to spend, say, $250 million on a new radar system for Lake Charles, or are we going to use that money through the FEMA budget to help people recover? You choose. And that is also a hard choice, you know what I mean? Because both are very important. And, you know, I think if it was me, I think getting the community back on its feet is probably priority one. You know, um, I'm with people you. back in their homes, getting businesses back up and running, I think is important. No, and, and I agree with you 100%. Uh, earlier today on the Weather Channel, uh, the FEMA administrator talked, stopped to talk to Paul Goodlow and they asked, okay, if you're dealing with Laura... How are we going to deal with Delta? And the guy was like, listen, this is why you have homeowners insurance, which I hope most people do, or renters insurance. Again, I hope most people do. It's something that's important. You know, I know a lot of people ask questions constantly like, well, do I really need this? In in short, yes, you do. You want to be able to protect your investment, protect your house. Take photos of the damage that Delta did. Okay. Listed out. Detailed photos. Take many, 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 many photos. Right. Keep copies of receipts of things you purchased. Every time you go to Home Depot to buy sheetrock or you go to buy nails and a hammer, keep that because you can turn around and use that to help get federal assistance and get a check that much quicker. Be prepared. You're an emergency management class to become an emergency manager. Bonnie, what's the first thing they tell you in Boy Scouts and emergency management? Be prepared. Be prepared. And the thing with insurance is, you know, we all know what flood zones are. Right. And it's it's designated. Is your house in flood zone or not? And if it is, then you have to also have flood insurance on top of your regular insurance. And I'm sure there's also additional insurance for areas that are regularly impacted by tropical storms and hurricanes. Oh, no doubt. So they should be adequately covered should, but you never know. And some insurance companies are probably a little shady and that kind of thing. So, you know, definitely something to always be checking your policy, especially at renewal time. Like, I mean, anytime you can change your insurance, whatever you want, but knowing what's covered, what's not covered, how much is covered, how much you're responsible for all of that kind of stuff is something to always, always be aware of and know. And, and I'm not, I'm guilty of not knowing exactly what, how much I'm covered for and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's my responsibility to be reading over my policy, but something that's something that everybody needs to do, especially in these kind of areas that are impacted over and over again in the same season. Yep, exactly. You live in a, you know, tornado prone neighborhood of Moore, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, You have a storm shelter. You've taken proactive steps to help protect yourself. You're taking proactive steps to help protect your property. I get it. It's expensive. Okay. There's no doubt about it. Car insurance. I moved uh, last year, literally four and a half miles away. My insurance rates almost doubled. Wow. I went from a, was it was pretty much a quiet, sleepy uh, retirement community to a very vibrant part of, of town. You know, where I live is very quiet. That's great. But there are still a lot of other people in the area and my insurance rates went up. It sucks, but you know what? It's where I chose to move, and it's what happens. So we go forward from there. But, again, talk to your insurance agent. Talk to FEMA. Talk to local emergency managers, okay? These people are constantly talking with insurance agents and insurance companies. They will be able to put you into the right hands when you need it. This is not a commercial for Allstate or anybody else. Um, 
Or State Farm, like a good neighbor, State Farm's there. Anyways, okay. You know, it's, it's just whoever you get your insurance from, just take an extra second. Make sure that you have adequate coverage because you never know when something's going to happen. You mentioned flood insurance. So many people think flood insurance, oh, well, I don't live near a river. No, 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 no. Your house floods with a hot water heater, flood insurance. You have a pipe burst in your house, flood insurance. That is also true. And I'm not in a flood zone, so I don't have to have flood insurance, but I could get it for yes, that reason. Exactly, because water damage inside the house is technically considered flood. So, again, talk to your insurance agent. Talk to them. Make sure it's something that you, if you feel like you need to have, make sure you have it. If you don't feel like you need to have it, I'd still have it, even just a little bit. Well, and, and talk to your insurance company about different things that give you discounts. Like I, yes. I got a storm shelter and I said, does that give me any discount? And they said, no, but I have a home security system. And that did give me a small discount. So, you know, and actually I have a tankless water heater now. When I bought the home two years ago, it was a 50 gallon tank water heater, but now I've gone tankless. And I actually haven't asked my insurance company that does anything for my homeowner's insurance because now there's not 50 gallons of water constantly sitting inside of my home. You know what right. I mean? So it, it's empty until I turn on water and then water flows through the tank and heats up. So there's never water just sitting in this little tank. So I'm wondering if that actually would give me a discount. I'm going to look into that. Check it. And I will See? say, I will. And I, here's another, here's another little tip. Okay. Insurance companies like sports and you're like, what does this have to do with anything? A lot. Most insurance companies will offer a discount if you are a graduate of a certain school. Okay. Yeah. And it's real easy to figure out if, you know, if this applies to you. One, you call an insurance agent and ask. Or two, <coughs> excuse me, go to your home college athletic page. Sponsors are plastered always all over your athletic department's website. See an insurance company? Chances are they're a sponsor. Chances are they probably offer their alumni discount. Okay, I get a discount because I went to the University of Oregon. I'm sure whoever insurance company you have would give you one because you went to Rose State and OU. So, you know, there are there are little things and little tips and discounts you can get, you know, based on where you went to school. My car is insured through Geico. Geico is the sponsor of the University of Oregon. Get a discount. It it works out. It's a nice little it's a nice little bit of savings. And, I mean, everything, everything helps, you know, now that I started working, sure. my car insurance went down. Like, I mean, so any amount of discount helps. And I think the reason that, you know, for example, if I did get the discount for the tankless water heater, sure. I think the reason they offer discounts like that for that kind of stuff is because those are mitigation steps. 100%. You're doing small things. I mean, Buying a tank water here is not a small thing. It was about $900, but it's still, that's still something that's way cheaper compared to having to replace drywall and flooring in a good section of my house if a tank busted. You know what I mean? Right. So it's incentive, the discounts on home insurance are incentives to take those mitigation steps around your home to help reduce the impacts of a disaster of some kind. No, no 100%. Again, areas that are in, you know, we talk about uh, with wildfires, you know, that urban wildland interface, right, where mm-hmm. we, t- we preach defensible space. You want as much space between you and a flammable burning tree or field by, you know, 
fresh grass, you know, healthy green grass, uh, not having wood piles next to your house, not having trees next to your house, not having pine needles or leaves in your eavesdrops or any of that stuff, right? We talk about, you know, preventing fire. Again, this ties back into homeowner's insurance. You have this stuff, chances are you're going to be paying less because you're not a high risk. You pay more insurance when you're a higher risk factor. That's just, that's the way it is. Is it kind of interesting? I'm, I, and I'm saying interesting as a, as a good word, but you know, is it a tool that insurance companies use sometimes to charge higher rates because people can be a little bit more reckless? 100%. Well, it's just like a red car has higher insurance. Right. Because chances are you're going to be pulled over more. Chances are you're probably going to be caught speeding. So red means fast, right? Just, oh, we're special. (laughs) I don't know how we got on this insurance rant, but I mean, it's true though. It's it's just something that you need to have and having good coverage. Right. It's worth it to pay for that coverage than have to rebuild part of your home or replace your car or whatever because you didn't have that insurance. Yep. So it's it's very true. It is very true. But we got into talking about just, you know, Delta and dealing with, you know, the aspect of FEMA and trying to go through and be prepared what happened now that, you know, an area of Louisiana's been hit four times this year. So just, you know, absolutely and still to me pretty insane. But, you know, we look at the tropics we talked about earlier. There's just one area they're looking, 20% formation. It's going to move off toward the Lesser Antilles. Uh, the notable thing with this is it's an, in an area right now where storms technically don't form or usually form this time of year. So a little bit is unknown with that. Now, again, if it is 2020 and we're just going to chalk everything up to that, well, hey, we'll get a storm that forms uh, in the Lesser Antilles in 2020 outside of the not normal part of the season. So we go forward from there, I guess. I mean, we still have a in 2020 time. We still have a lot of hurricane season. Left. We do. We do. We basically have, you know, a month and a half, if not more. Mm-hmm. So. We are Which the- in 2020 years is like another <laughs> seven months. Right, yeah, poss- <laughs> so- I mean, very possibly, very, very possibly. Um, I want to say that we have like 16 or 17 percent of the actual tropical storm season left. Obviously, that doesn't matter much because we've seen storms form before the season actually starts and after the season starts. So we will see what happens. But that's kind of the big story. Across the U.S., you know, Delta was the made headline. Obviously, historic reasons like we talked about. But now we kind of look back to the mainland and there's not a whole lot happening. Yes, Delta's dropping a lot of rain as it makes its way up toward Washington, D.C. And we'll go up the East Coast seaboard for it and eventually moves out to sea. But, Bonnie, you mentioned something earlier and we do got to talk about it. We are now into meteorological fall. We are getting closer to winter every single day, which is great for me. I'm totally stoked for that. But we're about to get another, uh, I won't say it's the first one because obviously we know it's not the first, but uh, early season cold air intrusion. Let's go with that. Well, I mean, you say it's fall. Are you sure it's fall? Because it's going to be 90 degrees here today. Well, yeah, I mean, it's currently, it's 55 degrees right now outside my window. Uh, Rain is blowing sideways. Uh, Wind gusts probably 30 to 40. Yeah, I know, right? Wind (laughs) gusting 30 to 40 miles an hour today. So, yeah, it's very fall-like here. Okay, well, I uh, 
clearly don't know what fall is because we don't get any fall. I don't know if we ever will. I'm not happy about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sorry to hear that. That's not good. I mean, this week's temperatures are going to be up and down 80s, 70s, 60s with, you know, like I mentioned earlier in the show, the Arctic front here in about a week, next Sunday into Monday. So that better happen. What are the temperatures forecasted to look like when that moves through? That the high next Monday, not tomorrow, but the next Monday is supposed to be 56. That's what they have it at now. The high is 56 and that will make me happy, but I just feel like it could change. Okay. Well, let me ask you this then. Are you guys worried about any storms with that transition? Not yet. Okay. Cause we are into the second chase season. And if you're going to get, you know, now, obviously, the atmosphere is not going to do, you know, a, a classic Denver where we go from 90 to 30 in, you know, 15 hours and you guys get six inches of snow on the ground. But I don't know. It's 2020. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Uh, you know, just, you know, with the atmosphere being as warm as it is now and having that quick changeover, you would think it would lend credence to the storm. So I guess we will wait and see. Hopefully, if anything, at least some rain, because we have been actually really dry the last several weeks and so we could use luckily we haven't been super windy and not super hot but we have been dry but you know it would be nice if we could get a little bit of sprinkles no i i totally i i i see that so um you know just looking today just a quick overview of what we have going on across the country thunderstorm wise obviously the remnants of delta are affecting you know the east coast seaboard right now as it is making its way north, there is an area that they are looking for for slight chances of severe thunderstorms in an area expands south out of Minnesota down through Iowa and portions of uh, extreme eastern South Dakota, portions of eastern Nebraska and northern parts of uh, or northeast parts of Kansas. So storms are, you know, forecasted to, you know. Kind of get busy, but uh, going forward through next Sunday, there are really no areas outside of today, tomorrow through Tuesday, the next calendar week, no areas of severe weather expected. So that is that is good, but we will wait and see, obviously. Yeah, I mean, things change on a dime, as we know, as we've seen throughout this whole season. So yeah, who knows what this week is going to bring. But as far as we go, I mean, we have a small cold front in the middle of the week that is not bringing any rain chances. And then the big one um, in a week that we're looking forward to. So we'll just see what happens. But right now it's going to be still pretty warm for the next week. And I'm just, I'm just whining about it. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Oklahoma sounds like it's gonna be warm and fun. Now I will say this, uh, speaking of Oklahoma, did you happen to watch red river yesterday? No, I didn't watch it, but man, did I hear about four overtimes? Oh, it was a fantastic game. It was one for the record books and the better team came out ahead. Sorry, Texas fans. I know a lot of you are upset, but hey. All right. Um, So in Oklahoma, you guys, you know, have warm temperatures and then eventually going to cool down. Out here in Oregon, the one thing we have going is we're on a low water alert. Whoa. Yeah. You want to take a stab at what that means? Okay. So I don't know. It kind of sounds like it could be scary, but it sounds like coastal waters are low. Close. Close. Rivers in the area are low, so we're on a uh, low water alert for the Portland and Vancouver harbors. Normally, submerged hazards will be much closer to the surface of the water. Exposed sandbars could make navigation difficult, and river channels may have shifted. So we are at the time of year before really our first heavy rains come in where we have uh, pretty much exhausted all of the mountain runoff. So... Mm. 
we're to that time of year now where we look to start rebuilding snowpack. So our river levels are relatively low. So on the Columbia and the Willamette, uh, the two big rivers that, you know, are the big navigational ports out here in, in Oregon and Southwest Washington, uh, the river levels are really low. And so, like we said, exposed sandbars, tree stumps have wrecked many a bottom of boats. So, if, so that's the reason yep. for the alert is anybody on boats traveling through there. Exactly. Because all of a sudden you'll be cruising along and then you hit a sandbar and you go from 30 miles an hour to zero real quick. And that hurts apparently. Have you, by the way, have you seen the boat video where they use uh turn down for what as the soundtrack where these guys no. are like in a high speed boat and they're going around and they hit waves and all of a sudden like something happens where they all get like slammed to the front of the boat and they get tossed about. I'll, I'll, I'll send you the link. It's quite hilarious. Yes. This, is, this is how we are. We want to see people slammed around in a boat for yes. entertainment. But yeah, I want to see it. Yeah, Because I feel like music makes it. It makes it fun. so much better. makes it so much better. Uh, everybody's fine. Everybody's fine. I think there were two concussions. But other than that, everybody everybody turned out okay. But That's it's, good. But it's why you need not show off for cute girls. Yeah. Yeah. Cute girls are dangerous. I mean, I wouldn't know. But oh, no, stop. cute girls are dangerous. You'd be quiet. You'd be quiet. <laughs> you spend plenty of time out at Lake Thunderbird. All, all the boys, all the boys gawk. I understand. All right. So uh, <laughs> what we got going out here weather wise for us, uh, it's going to be a rainy and windy day. So kind of looking forward to it um, today. Temperatures in the lower 60s. Wind ramping up this afternoon could get high as uh, 40 mile an hour gusts. Lots of rain between a tenth and a quarter of an inch possible. Uh, and then we actually start to dry out a little bit, which is very strange for us we went through this long period of dry weather and then also it's like oh my gosh the skies are going to open up well forecast model said eight days of rain it's going to end up being like three so by the time we get to wednesday temperatures will be in the mid to upper 60s fog most of the day which is kind of nice but we'll see what happens so that's what we're looking like nothing too special except for today's incoming storm which is kind of nice could you imagine if we didn't have anything going on in the tropics right now? Like, it'd be so boring weather-wise. Oh, it would be, but that'd be fine. I'd be okay with that. I mean, I would, too, if it wasn't 90 degrees today. Okay, that's the last time I'll complain about it, but I'm just saying. No, and, and again, I totally get it. I totally get it. <laughs> I, I will gladly take your heat if you want, you know, 55 in wind and rain. Yes, I do want that. Okay, fine. We'll, we'll trade. I'll hop on a plane. Mm-hmm. Apparently, uh, apparently uh, airfares are cheap right now. Yeah, yeah, they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good times. Good times. Well, you know, we look back on Delta, and again, we just kind of watch the tropics to see if anything else forms. But as Bonnie said, it's starting to kind of get quiet, which is maybe not a bad thing. We know we're going to ramp up here real quick, though, with uh, incoming Pacific storms, snowstorms, polar vortexes, Arctic outbreaks, cool, weird Canadian you know, cold air masses making its way to interact with warm southerly air. So uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, the NHC needs a break. I don't think any of them have slept since April-ish. Probably. So I think they need a nap. I agree. Bonnie, another great edition of B-Squared, your weekly weather podcast. I am Bobby in Oregon. And I'm Bonnie in Oklahoma. And we will talk to you guys next week. Bye.